There's a very uh, real possibility today that some of us in this room may never, ever taste death. There's also a very real possibility that before this service is over, the trumpet blast will sound. The Lord himself will appear in the clouds with the train of all the heavenly hosts behind him. And he'll come riding in and will take us with him. To live for all eternity, Lord willing, may it be so. Now there's also a very real possibility that we'll conclude the service and go back to another week of toilsome work, messy homes, sick kids, another week of achy joints, loved ones that need our attention, loved ones who are suffering, a culture that at times seems like it's gone mad, maybe for some another week of depression, fear, anxiety, marriage troubles, money troubles, a secret life of sin that you've been doing your best to keep hidden. The first option means eternal glory and peace. And the second option means another week of battling sin, battling the darkness, and continued waiting. Well, my hope for the first outcome today is so great, right, that the Lord would come before the end of this service that I wrote two endings to my sermon. Okay? And the first ending is just all in caps lock. And it says, run down the aisle, high-five your family, and go outside. My first thing is very enthusiastic, because, oh, I would love, I would love if the Lord appeared. And so the second thing is not as fun. I have it there just in case the Lord tarries. But I'm going to get my hopes up. And I say this at the front because I want you to get your hopes up as well. I want us for the next 30 minutes to be so consumed with that idea that at the very end of the service, the Lord might come. I want us to think nothing but Jesus Christ, His resurrection, His power, His glory, His might, and the fact that He will one day return, possibly today. Possibly today. Before I get up to preach, I sit in the front pew up here, and I have sort of a little ritual, a little tradition of things I go through in my mind. Some of it I've learned from uh, John Piper, who I'm always in debt to, and some of it I've learned just from experience. And I do something, I sit up here and I pray, and I ask the Lord for guidance, and I ask the Holy Spirit to sort of take over, because nothing good will come if it's just me talking. And I ask for peace, and I ask the Lord to remember His promises. I say, Lord... You promise that your sheep will hear your voice. I want them to hear. You promise that your word will not return void. Don't let it return void. I, I hold God to his word. I pray for wisdom and I pray to decrease and for him to increase. And then the other thing I do is I ask God to, to make heaven real to me. And I sit there and I say, Lord, make heaven real to me. Let me, let me feel the cool breeze and let me imagine the aromas let me hear the trickling of the stream of life in my ears. I want to hear the, the saints singing praises, glory, glory, glory to the one who sits on his throne. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear, imagine heaven on this side. I want my heart to ache for home before I get up to preach. Then I pray for the same thing on this side. And I say, I pray, Lord, make hell real to me. I want to feel the heat. I want to think about the dreadfulness, the suffering. I want all of this to be serious. I want souls, lost souls in my mind to be so serious to me because this isn't a game. 
It's not a concert. It's not a show. This is life or death. With all that in my mind, I walk up to the pulpit and I have this earnestness about me. Because this is serious. This, these words are, are life to some. The, 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 the word of God says that this word is life to some and it's conviction and judgment for others. And so I wear that and I think about that. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one of these other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as to the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Here's what's, to sum up what Lewis is saying is this. Everyone at the 23rd Street Walmart right now has an immortal soul. Every single one of those people at Walmart right now is either an immortal, everlasting, splendiferous thing or a horror. They will either live forever in heaven or forever in hell. There's a man that stands out there, I'm not sure if you've seen him, but he has a little sign sometimes, and he has a little speaker, and he sings hymns, and he preaches from the corner. And whatever you think about that, if you, you know, it's serious to him. This is serious to him. And so he goes out there, and he preaches. Is it serious to us? After all, Jesus could very well return in the next 25 minutes. Is it serious to us? Well, it's serious to Paul. It's very serious to Paul. Listen to verse 1. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Jesus will one day return to judge both the living and the dead, and his appearing is within our view, so we must do what? What does Paul say? He says, preach the word. Why? Well, this is where we jump down to verse 3. Okay, we're going to jump down now to verse 3. We must preach the word, verse 3, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Last week I read this news article, maybe some of you saw it, but it was entitled, it said this, it said, Madonna wants the Pope to know that Jesus supports abortion. The singer Madonna wants the Pope to do that, and she said, if I could just sit down with him and explain it, I think he'd, I think he'd see that. And I laughed at that because I'm no fan of the Pope, but I think he's probably studied this a little bit. You know, I, think, I don't think he has much to learn on this particular subject from Madonna. But Madonna's serious as well. 
She's just as serious as the guy who's down by the corner. She's serious. She wants to meet with the Pope, and she wants to gather around herself a great number of teachers who will scratch her itching ears. Not just her, millions of others want to do this. They want to gather around themselves teachers and learned people, and they want to say, see, see, we're right. See, see, my interpretation of what God's Word says is actually right, and I've gathered around the Pope. I've got the Pope on my side. They, they want to gather around support. They, they want people to, to look at them and pat them on the back and say, that's, that's good. That's good what you're doing. Paul speaks of such people in Romans 1.30. He says this. He says, they invent ways of doing evil. And jumping down to 132, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And so these people are inventing new ways. To, they, they do evil here, and they go, well, let's invent new ways to do evil. That was good. We, we've gotten approval for that. Now let's do some more. Let's do some more. So how do children of the king respond to this blasphemy, this disobedience from the world? How do we respond as we wait for the king's return? Well, Paul tells us in verse 5, But you, Timothy, you, us, Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. You'll remember this letter is written to Timothy, a young Timothy from Paul, who's about to leave the world. He's about to die. And he's writing to Timothy to encourage him, to instruct him. And and he's saying, listen, there's going to come a time of trial. You're under Nero. I'm about to go get my head lopped off by Nero. If that's happening to me, it's going to happen to your people. Get ready. Take encouragement. And you'll notice he doesn't say, Timothy, I want you to get on social media. Timothy, I want you to go make the best protest sign you could ever make. You know what? Go boycott this business, Timothy. That's not what he starts out with. He he says, Timothy, I want you to keep your head. Keep your head. Humans, with their complex emotions, we have complex desires, we're like boats. We're like boats. And we're out in the water, we're out in the sea of life, and we get swept up by so many things. It's so easy to get swept up. And, and, and Paul even uses this language elsewhere. He says, he says you're tossed about by every wind of doctrine. We get tossed about over here and over there. But Christians should not be so. We should not be tossed about. We have an anchor We have the Word of God. We have the sacraments. We have the communion of the saints. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have Jesus as our captain. Therefore, part of keeping our heads simply means not being swept away by our emotions, by our own sinful desires. It means holding fast to the truth of God's Word. It means not following every fad or craze. As the world daily invents new sins, we repent of our old ones. As the world comes up with new self-help plans, new identities, new idols to worship, we remain steadfast as Christians. As the world tumbles into chaos, we are anchored in the sea of life. We're anchored in Christ. If this sounds boring or old-fashioned, then let me suggest that you go get on a boat right now. Toss away your GPS. Toss away the map. Toss away the compass. And just go let let the wind take you, man. You know? Taste the rainbow. Do the do, right? Follow your heart. The world's filled 
with directionless wanderers who think they're free. They think, if I just let the wind take me, I'll be free. But they're actually lost. They're lost and they don't know it. The saying goes, not all who wander are lost. That's true, but most are. If you find a directionless wanderer and you go, can I help you, sir? Yes, I'm looking for this. I'm lost. Secondly, while we wait for Jesus to appear, Paul says we are to endure suffering. My son was in the Chick-fil-A playground the other day. And this kid came up to him, and, and children cover ears, parents cover their ears. He called him a dirty name. He called him a chicken butt. Okay? And I pardon my French. I apologize. The kid said this to my son, and, and my son did the, the most mature thing he could do. He called him a chicken butt right back. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is my moment. This is my time to shine, right? And I took him aside. I said, son, we don't say those words. And he said, why? <laughs> And I didn't say because it's impolite or because it's crude or, you know, what are you doing? Like, I didn't say that. I said, we don't say those words because we're Christians. Because we're Christians. We, we don't do those things. We don't, we don't watch those things, right? We're different. We, I, wanted, I wanted our identity to shape the experience. I didn't want it to be about, that's impolite or cultural thing. I wanted, I wanted his identity as a Christian, our identity as Christians to shape his experience, and I hope his experience will be like this his entire life. I hope as he gets older and matures that it'll come to the place where he says, oh, I'm sorry, I don't do that. I don't go to those places. I don't watch those things. I don't listen to that. Not because he's some prude, but because he loves obedience. Because he loves honoring his father. Not me. His real father. He loves honoring God. Christianity comes at a cost, and that's okay. That's okay, because the king is coming with rewards. He's coming with healing in his wings. And he's coming with freedom like we have never, ever known. The king is coming. Again, if that sounds rigid or boring to you, that's only because our sinful flesh hates obedience. We hate to be told what to do. You know, if you've ever, if you ever had children, do you ever have to teach your children how to disobey? It comes hardwired in them. I never had to teach my son to disobey. He just knew how to do it. I do have to teach him daily how to obey. I do have to do that. And so we are at war with our own flesh. And as we endure this suffering for the sake of Christ, we're in some small way, through these little silly little things sometimes, we are being taught endurance and patience and obedience because we have to learn it. We have to learn it. Finally, Paul says, in light of the itching ears and the opposition of the world, do the work of an evangelist. There tends to be this sort of stigma about Christians that we're all about conviction and rebuke, and that's it. We're only, we're just, you know, no fun. Conviction and rebuke, that's it. When in reality, Christians are about good news. We've got the best news. Jesus himself says, you will know you are, they are my people. You'll know Christians by the way you... Love one another. We're the bringers of good news. We shouldn't be known about conviction and rebuke. We should love people. We should be known for our love and for the good news. If we insist on obedience, if we insist on self-denial, it's only because there's a better country. It's only because we're, our pleasures are waiting for us in heaven. And so now we're here to learn obedience. Going back to the Lewis quote, Think about this once more. I want you to think about the implications of what C.S. Lewis said. If there are no mere mortals, then that means all the stars 
and Hollywood. All those crazy reality TV show people that we love to watch, right? The ones where they go chasing after Bigfoot and stuff. Those guys, the homeless men and women downtown, all of them are immortals. All of them have souls. And all of them are valuable and beautiful and have worth. All of them are just searching for something. They're searching for something, anything, to feel, fill the ache of eternity in their hearts. The Bible says God has hidden eternity in our hearts. We are restless until we rest in Him. And everybody's aching. And we have the cure. We have the good news of Jesus. Francis Schaeffer, who's a theologian, a prolific writer, he was walking with his graduate students one night, and a prostitute came up to him. And she said, $100, $100. And he said, oh, madam, I think you're worth much more than that. And so they began this negotiation, and he kept raising it, he kept raising it, he kept raising it, to the point where she was frustrated with him. And she said, all right, sir, what, what do you think I'm worth to you? You tell me what I'm worth to you. And Schaefer responded, ma'am, I could not possibly pay what you are worth. But let me tell you about someone who did. You see, Jesus paid it all. He's paid the price for these souls. These immortals. He's paid for my sins and your sins and for all of those who will come to him in faith. And so we keep our heads. We endure suffering. We preach the gospel. We fix our eyes on Jesus and his appearing, which could be in the next couple of minutes. If the Lord doesn't come today, as I hope he does, I pray he gives us beautiful, urgent gospel feet to go, to go and do the hard work of evangelism. Let me pause. I want to pause here for a minute, and I want to tell you that you actually can't do any of this. Not only can't you do any of this, you actually won't want to do any of this unless God grants you the grace to do it. You won't have beautiful feet unless God grants you the grace to have beautiful feet. God commands us to keep our heads, then he gives us the grace to keep our heads. He commands us to endure suffering, then he supplies the grace needed for us to endure. He commands us to preach the word, then he gives us the words to say. So don't think you can do any of this on your own. I never preach and I never want you to go home and make a to-do list. I never, ever want you to go home and make a to-do list. That's not the gospel. Jesus says in John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. Without Jesus, this is hopeless. So not by our works, but by grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. The gospel isn't about our work. It's about resting in Christ's work. Jumping back now to verse 1, which I promised we would do. We're jumping back. In light of Jesus, who will judge both the living and the dead, and with his imminent return in view, verse 2... Paul says we are to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In season and out of season simply means to preach the gospel when it's popular and when it's not popular. We're to take or make an opportunity for the gospel. Take it or make it. This is what Schaefer did. The woman was bold enough to proposition herself to him, so he was bold enough to take that proposition Christ to her. He made the opportunity. He took her boldness and he redirected it back at her. Paul goes on to speak 
of the effects of those who would witness to Christ and, and the effects that must be produced. First, they must reprove or convict in love. Once again, there's another famous street preacher. Some of you may have heard of him. His name is Ray Comfort. And uh, I don't agree with everything he says. I, I rarely agree with any one person anyways. But he's on TV, uh, maybe not TVN, it's one of those shows, but he has this show called The Way of the Master. And he does this, this really uh, interesting sort of evangelism. He, he sits on the preach, stands on the preach, uh, I'm sorry, he stands on the uh, street, and he finds a well-trafficked area. And the first thing he does is he reproves or convicts people in love. People come up to him. And he asks him this question. He goes, he has this uh, New Zealand accent. I won't try to do it. But he says, have you ever lusted after a man or woman? Okay, think about that. Okay. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever hated someone? And most people, if they're being honest, and they're not trying to you know, juke him in some way, will say, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, I'm a liar. Sure, I've done it. Yeah, 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 I've done that. I've stolen something. Yeah, of course I've stolen something. You know? And they're all cocky. And they're, yeah, yeah, I've done that. And then Ray says this. He says, he says, based on just the few little Ten Commandments I listed, by your own admission, you are a thieving, lying, lying, adulterous. You know, and he has them repeat it back to themselves. And this really incredible thing happens because everyone thinks their standard for good is good until it's, it's held up to God's standard of good. And this remarkable thing happens. They sit there and you almost see their cocky expression change to, you know, and they're sitting there, that they're like, did I just say that? Did I just admit that I'm a liar? Did I just admit that? And the next thing Ray does is he rebukes now. He explains that due to their sin, due to their sin, they've been, they've been cast away. They, they, they cannot stand the presence of a holy and righteous God. And based on their own admission of guilt, that they're lying, thieving, adulterous, all these things, based on their own guilt, if they stood before the king, right now, if they died, if the Lord came back right now, they would be judged based on their own merit. And it wouldn't be enough. They'd be found guilty. They're floored by this. It's, it's miraculous to see. They're floored by this. They, they stand there in silence. They, they were once so cocky and so ready to speak back, and now they're floored by this. And then finally, he does what Paul says. He encourages with teaching and patience. And he looks at them and he says, this doesn't have to be the case. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience in our place. He took the wrath of God on the cross for us in our place. He died and rose again. And now by believing in the name of Jesus Christ, you can be saved. You'll get to heaven and you'll stand before God and your verdict will be not guilty. No charges. God's patient with us. And so we should be patient with others. We got good news. We need to love people. We need to be patient with them. Think of how stubborn and prideful you were before Christ, before God grabbed a hold of you and took you to be His. Think about the person that, that preached that into your life. Your mother, your grandparents, your friends, maybe somebody you didn't even know, who didn't even know you exist. Maybe that was the person who spoke to you before the Spirit got you. All of it was grace upon grace. And so we reprove, rebuke, exhort in love, and we trust in God's faithfulness. Paul's going to close out this section with really his own epitaph. He says this in verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. 
I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And almost every Roman meal during this time was, was ended with a sacrifice. A libation was poured out. They would take some wine and pour out this thing. And it would be a sacrifice to a God of their choice. And so Paul, in a way here, is saying, my time is ended. The day has come. It's time for me to depart. My life must now be poured out as the final sacrifice to my God. You see, Paul was shortly to be decapitated by Nero, the crazy emperor Nero, but he didn't view it as an execution. He wasn't going to his execution. He was going to the final thing he had to offer to God. He'd already offered his time, his skill, his mind, and now it was time to offer his life. Even the word that Paul uses here in the Greek for departure, the Greek word here is a sign of hope in the Lord. Listen to what one of my commentaries says. It says this, The Greek word is a word for unyoking an animal from the shafts of the cart or the plow. It is the word for loosening bonds or fetters. It is the word for loosening the ropes of a tent. It is the word for loosening the moorings of the ropes on a ship. So for Christians, death is laying down the burden in order to rest. It is laying aside the shackles in order to be free. It is dismantling a temporary campsite in order to take up residence in heavenly places. It is casting off the ropes which bind us to this world in order to set sail on a voyage which ends in the presence of God. Whom then shall fear it? But this heavenly rest, this eternal reward exists for Paul because, why? Because he fought the fight. Because he finished the race and he kept the faith. Well, what does that even mean? What does that even mean to keep the faith? What does that mean? Well, it means he had confidence in Jesus Christ until the very end. It means he went to, to, to have his head locked off. And he, even in that moment, even with his head on the chopping block, he knew on the other side he was going to open his eyes to glory. He had confidence in Christ to the end. John Piper puts it again this way. He says, I have kept on taking Christ at his word. I have kept on counting on what he said is true. I have kept on trusting in his counsel. I have kept on having confidence in his promises. And you see all this fighting, all this racing and keeping that Paul has done was not due to him having faith in himself to do the keeping. You see, he didn't have faith in, his, in himself to do the keeping, but instead his faith was in Jesus' power to keep him. That's how he could go to the execution block and have faith. That's how he could keep the faith, because he went knowing that Christ was going to be on the other side. We have faith in his death for our sins, faith in his power to save, faith in his resurrection, and one day ours. Again, the fight isn't so much against the world or the culture. I'm not calling us to, to do a culture war. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the fight is against our own sin. It's against ourselves. We're the problem because we're sinful and we need a Savior. The fight is against the powers of darkness. And the race is one of self-discipline. It's one of self-denial. You can run the race all you want. You can go fast. You can go slow. But none of that matters. What matters is crossing the finish line. There are plenty of people in this world who will run the race of faith and they'll never cross that line. They'll never, they'll never take it all the way. And so, Lord, we need help. We need to set our eyes on the prize. We need, we need Jesus to keep us as we run and we need to look to him. Verse 8. Finally, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 
Paul now turns from the verdict of the world, right? The verdict of the world for Paul is death and dishonor. He's going to lose his head. He says, Timothy, keep your head, and Paul's about to lose his. He turns from that verdict to the verdict of Christ, eternal life, the crown, and everlasting honor. This crown of righteousness will be bestowed upon Paul, and Jesus himself will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. The most cherished words I can imagine. Paul goes on into verse 8, and not only to me, not only to me, but also to all who have longed, who have loved his appearing. Paul redirects quickly. He puts forth an important point. Heaven is not about the crown. Sometimes we make it about the crown. Sometimes we make heaven about seeing loved ones or, or the endless joys or all these things. That's true of heaven. All of that is true of heaven. But you know what the point of heaven is? Christ. Being with Jesus. Being with God. That's the point of heaven. And everything else is just icing on the cake. Heaven is about being with God. A story that I think sums up all of this so perfectly. It's a little long, but this is how I'm going to close. It's this, it's this beautiful story. Uh, I read this book in college called Endurance. It's a biography about um, Ernest Shackleton. It was written by Alfred Lansing. And this is a little story of his journey. It's, it's incredibly harrowing. Uh, it's really intense. So listen up. I think you'll really enjoy it. But this sums up the Christian life for me perfectly. Listen to this. There was a famous explorer by the name of Ernest Shackleton, and the name of his ship was the Endurance. He departed from South Georgia Island for the Weddell Sea with a crew on December 5, 1914. And as the ship moved southward, early ice was encountered. Deep in the Weddell Sea, conditions gradually grew worse until on January 19, 1915, the Endurance became frozen fast in an ice flow. When spring arrived in September, eight months later, the breaking of the ice and its later movements put extreme pressure on the ship's hull. On October 24th, water began pouring in. Shackleton gave the order, abandon ship, saying, she's going down. And men, provisions, and equipment were transferred to camps on an ice flow as the ship went under. For almost two months, Shackleton and his entire party camped on a large flat flow of ice. And after failed attempts to march across the ice to an island, Shackleton decided to set up another, another more permanent camp, aptly named Patience Camp, on another flow. And he trusted to the drift of the ice to take them towards a safe landing. On April 9th, their ice flow broke into two, and Shackleton ordered the crew into the lifeboats to head for the nearest land. After five harrowing days at sea, exhausted, the men landed their three lifeboats, three lifeboats at Elephant Island, 346 miles from where they originally left. This was the first time they had stood on solid ground for 497 days. Elephant Island was an inhospitable place, so Shackleton decided to risk an open boat journey to the 800-mile distant South Georgia whaling stations, where he knew help was available. Shackleton chose five companions for the journey, and he refused to pack more supplies, knowing that after four weeks, they would be dead anyways. The lifeboat was launched. During the next 15 days, it sailed through the waters of the Southern Ocean at the mercy of the stormy seas, in constant peril of capsizing. On May 8th, the cliffs of South Georgia finally came into sight, but hurricane-force winds prevented the possibility of landing. The party was forced to ride out the storm offshore in danger of being dashed against the rocks. They later learned that the same hurricane had sunk a 500-ton steamer. 
On the same, on the following day, they were able finally to land on the unoccupied southern shore, and Shackleton decided to attempt a land crossing of the island. He left three of his six-man crew behind at the landing point, and he traveled on foot 32 miles for, with two others over mountainous terrain for 36 hours straight to reach the whaling station. He finally arrived at the whaling station, and he burst open the door and he said, Hello, my name is Ernest Shackleton, and I need a boat. Shackleton immediately sent a boat to pick up the three men he had left on the other side of South Georgia while he set to work to organize the rescue of the Elephant Island men who had been isolated there for four and a half months. Four and a half months those men had been waiting on an inhospitable landmass on Elephant Island. His first three attempts were foiled by sea ice, but the fourth was successful. Upon his arrival to Elephant Island, Shackleton found his men packed and ready to go. Later on, when he asked the captain he had left in charge how all the men knew the specific day and time when he would arrive, the captain said, Sir, I, I never knew when you would return. I only knew that you would. I told the crew every day, get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. Are your bags packed? Are you ready? Because the boss may indeed come today. And yet, and yet here we are at the end of my message. And he's not returned as I hoped. Does that mean we unpack our backs? Does that mean we settle down in this world, this inhospitable place where we're at? Do we call it home? Does it mean he's lied to us? Has he not kept his word? We should abandon all hope. No. No. It means the entire flock of God has not come in. It means God's still being patient with us. It means we have work to do. It means if we truly long for his appearing, if we truly are waiting for it, if we love it, if we are longing for it, it means we need to hasten the day by working in the fields. It means all the people at Walmart right now need us to go over there and tell them about Jesus. We need to run the race. We need to fight the fight. We need to spread the good news. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. That's the great commission. Jesus gave it to him, us before he left. He said, go. Go. And so all we have left, some of us, is to offer our lives as living sacrifices. And may the Lord fit us for the hard task ahead. And so my final question then for you is, do you know him? Do you know him? Have you put your faith in him? Are you... Are you terrified at the way I started this sermon? Were you terrified at the thought that he might actually come? Does that scare you? Would you scatter like a cockroach under the light of his glory? The good news is you don't have to be afraid. I'm here, I'm here with good news. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You can long for that day. You can wait for that day. That's good news. If you turn to him, if you would but turn to him right now, he will take all your sins and cast them away. As far as the east is from the west, he will cast them away. He has made you white as snow. Your neighbors, your family, co-workers, they need to hear that. It's an emergency. It's an emergency. And I have great hope. And I have great hope that he, he will keep his promise. I have great hope that one day I will die. <laughs> 
I have great hope that this is not the end. So even if the boss doesn't come back in my lifetime, even if the boss doesn't come back in my lifetime, I'll eventually go to him. Until then, let us fight, run, preach, and every day we keep our backs packed. We're ready to go with eyes fixed on Christ. And who knows? Who knows? We still have the afternoon. Come quickly, Jesus. Come quickly. Let's pray.